Hi friends. Well, it's been an awfully long time, uh, but we would love to welcome you back to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined today by my friends, Johanna Mellis. Hi, Johanna. Hey there. And Derek Silva. Hey, Derek. Hey, it's been a minute. Been a minute. It has been a long, long time. Uh, very long. You, you probably, hopefully, have noticed that um, we have disappeared a little bit over the last, I don't know if it's been something like six months or so. Uh, I think we've all sort of experienced things going on in our lives uh, in these last six months that have caused us to take just a step back, uh, not because of any diminished enthusiasm for this project. And in fact, um, you know, frankly, we've, we've heard from from many of you out there about um, what you've been able to get out of what we've been trying to accomplish here on the end of sport and it's incredibly gratifying to hear that and and more than anything else that's what brings us back to have more of these conversations about sport and harm because um, it is you know important to us as a political project and and to know that people are, are listening and thinking along with us um, really there's there's nothing more important than that to us in terms of this project. So that's why we're here again. Um, but maybe we should say just a few things about why we've been gone. I had a, a child, my partner, my partner and I had a child in October. Um, so I've been, yes, exactly. Yeah, super that's... excited. It was, it was all great. Um, everything healthy family, but you know, that's, that's taken my, my time for the last uh, couple months. Um, but I, I am so, so excited to be back. Um, as, especially I think as, as Nathan, I kind of, um, work through our thoughts and, and, and write out our ideas for our book project, the end of college football. I think it's like, it's all really motivating to get back, uh, to, to interviewing folks and, and learning and listening from people. So I'm really excited to be here with you today and, and, and getting back to at least a, a somewhat reasonable, um, recording schedule with both of you. Yeah, for me, um, it's just been a rather large change in my life because uh, I was um, incredibly fortunate to be able to take up a new position uh, back north in Canada in New Brunswick at the University of New Brunswick uh, in the Department of Sociology. Uh, and so I left behind North Carolina. Um, yes, also, yes, yay. I know. Uh, as it snows, it says, it says the first day of winter, but that's laughable um, because we've been experiencing winter for what feels like weeks already. Uh, I've never yeah. seen this amount of snow this quickly. Like it's it's actually really wild. The Atlantic Canadian experience compared to um, Southern Ontario uh, in the Toronto area where, you know, you get some snow, but it's, you know, whatever. But here it's just like, when is the snow going to stop and where do you put it all? And this is just the very beginning. I've never seen anything like it. Um, but anyway, it's. The, the, the big change for me in a lot of ways is, you know, because I'm delighted to have this position, um, is that actually I've been, I've been teaching in the area of social theory primarily and not sport this year. So that's been a radical change. And my head has been like on Durkheim and Marx and Weber and uh, Du Bois and Fanon and a little bit less on um, current events in the world of sport. So mm. this is good for me, too, actually. To, you're you're going to reorient me, I think, back um, into sports. <laughs> so I, I some people, actually probably a fair number of people have know this already um i don't have such great news it'll be i think good in the end but um the past year i've been splitting up from my long-term partner of almost 50 well 15 years now um so that's been a pretty gigantic change uh won't go into details about that because that's not anybody's business except for my own and the people mm -hmm. close to me that i choose to share with but it's i think it's it's been kind of a one of the reasons why it's been such an enormous change is sort of figuring out like how does this impact my daily life and obviously there's the personal fallout and kind of you know all the emotional things that go on go along with it but there's also the kind of everyday financial stuff and what is it mm -hmm. what is it like for someone who's been coupled for most of their adult life to which is a huge privilege to be single and how do I afford things and there's just kind of been a lot of change that way um that really just required me to kind of step back on some things but then also work on my research that's been something I've been excited about and working on again is like a good distraction but also something I've been wanting to get back to mm -hmm. so while the guys have been working on their book I've been working on mine which is based on my dissertation it's called changing the global game Hungarian athletes in international sport during the cold war um, I have some presses that are interested in a full manuscript which is very exciting so yes. now I just need to kind of buckle down and focus on that but 
but um i guess i'll just say like i don't know shit's hard for a lot of people like everybody i mean all of the changes that we've gone through um good and bad have been really hard on all of us and it's just like a lot with you know year three of the pandemic and the economic situation not looking good um and just there's kind of still this like onslaught of like political shit going on every day and then twitter's falling apart so i don't know it's it's been like a really rough year um but um in terms of the podcast i'm really looking forward to like regrouping and talking with you two again and bringing on guests and kind of doing this work that's really invigorating and also gives me a lot of community so i'm looking forward to to picking this up again with you too yeah absolutely and and like it's it's uh it's worth always thinking about like this podcast we talk a lot about labor and and compensation and harm and all these things on the podcast and this is very much a, a labor of love this this podcast has been so that i think that all explains a lot of the reasons why we've kind of taken a step back but i think we also all, all three of us maybe i'm speaking for all three of us but all three of us can probably um speak to the fact that this, this podcast has also provided a lot in terms of of just like professional engagement with folks and and learning being able to learn from people and that is there's something to that as well and i'm really appreciative for for both of you um to kind of go along uh, the, the the journey with um especially i think right now uh i've been thinking a lot i've been pondering a lot the last a couple of months because uh i don't know about youtube but twitter is entirely useless for me at, at this moment um what used to be something of a platform to like discuss and to engage with people and to talk to people has become quite literally useless i i can't go i can't my feed is all messed up every time i tweet like i in like nobody sees it and i don't i, I i'm not thinking of in terms of attention just in terms of like actual engagement I quite literally can't see that. I can't, um, uh, can't use that platform anymore. So it's great to be back to a, a medium that's more um, useful and more engaging in terms of dialogue and discussion. Yeah, and I, and I actually think that it's worth adding on that that because um, we really don't know what the future of that um, of that medium, yeah. Twitter, is. If folks are not currently subscribed to the podcast, but if you enjoy it and want to hear. Uh, hear new episodes when they come out I, I think please do subscribe because we may reach the point where it's fairly difficult for us to kind of share the information that we've released mm-hmm. a new episode to promote those new episodes with you given that twitter was the primary kind of vehicle we had for that previously uh but if you subscribe yeah. to the podcast then we don't really have that concern right because then you'll then you'll then you'll be notified um when they come out and then we won't really have any issues associated with that and the other thing i want to to say just because uh, we've been gone for so long is that we actually do have a couple of episodes prepared that we recorded before we took this hiatus. So um, we can be, I think, really earnest in uh, promising you that in the in the coming weeks, um, you will hear an interview with Josh Myers of Howard University about racial capitalism, which I'm excited to share, um, and mm-hmm. a conversation Johanna and I had with Dion Kohler um, about youth sports, which I also thought was a, a really fabulous discussion. So um, those are definitely coming in the very near future, um, as well as whatever else we put together. There's been a lot happening, um, and I don't really know where to start, um, but clearly so the 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 fifa world cup um just ended uh we can talk about that there's been a whole bunch of things that i'd like to talk about in terms of um with the ncaa and college athletics um as we know mark emmert is stepping down as president of the ncaa being replaced by um massachusetts uh governor or former governor uh republican charlie baker um the nlrb ruling in los angeles um that usc the ncaa are joint um employers i'd like to chat about obviously there's been a lot of news in canada around um abuse in sport so these are some topics i'd like to <laughs> i'd like to, to to chat about so where would we like to go first well let's let's talk a little bit about the the um the ncaa stuff uh because yeah. we've um spent a lot of time in the past covering some of these issues and really what we have is the next chapter in a story that we've been covering for a long time um, if folks will remember, last September, that is of 2021, um, the general counsel for the NLRB, Jennifer Abruzzo, issued a memo um, essentially saying that 
her view was that the NLRB should treat college athletes um, as employees and that even the use of the term student athlete by the NCA was a form of labor violation and that it was kind of trying to disingenuously um, convince workers or employees that they in fact were not workers or employees. Um, and as a consequence of, of that uh, memo, we, we had Jennifer Abruzzo on the show, um, and so you, you can go look that up in our archive. I think it's well worth listening to, where she sort of explained what her project was in issuing that memo and what her hopes were for the future of the labor rights of college athletes. And what she was articulating there was although, that although the NLRB has only jurisdiction over the private sector in the United States, her hope was really that there's a pathway here for the unionization of college athletes more broadly. She wasn't prescribing a particular path um, or, a, or a particular form that that unionization would take or a particular type of bargaining unit. More, she was trying to lay out the options available to college athletes and those who were interested in pursuing further labor rights and how they might go about doing that. Well, fast forward a little more, more than a year now, um, and we have seen various attempts made by folks like Michael Shu, who we had on the podcast. Um, on our, I think third, he was our first guest, I believe, on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, former Way back region. In the day. That's right. Former region at the University of Minnesota. Um, he filed a complaint to the NLRB, and then we also saw a complaint filed by the folks at the NCPA. Um, but wait, pause for a second. Are they called the NCPA? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's, yeah, his, what's, yeah. the, what's, what's his name? Uh, Ramogi Humo. Humo. Ramogi, thank you. Okay. Three, two, one. We also saw um, another complaint filed by uh, Ramogi Huma and the folks at the NCPA, particularly focused on um, working conditions in, uh, at the institutions of University of Southern California and UCLA. And so recently, we, we heard reporting that the NLRB was focused, instead of focusing on Shu's broader complaint against the, the NCA as an institution as a whole, the focus would be on the USC complaint specifically. And that makes sense because USC is a private institution, unlike UCLA. And so they fall squarely within the jurisdiction of the NLRB. Well, it turns out that um, the NLRB's local office has found that indeed there is um, a, a, a labor violation that has been experienced by college athletes. And not only that, but there is the indication that they are considering this to be a joint employer issue. And that was mm -hmm. crucial to what Jennifer Abruzzo laid out as the pathway to transforming all of college yeah. sports, not just the private institutions, because there are only a handful of private institutions of, among the Power Five conferences mm -hmm. that is the most revenue generating schools, right? So um, that, you know, that, that's, that's why Northwestern attempted to unionize historically, because they're a private institution. Yeah. But the joint employer provision says, listen, although your employer might be, let's say, UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles, a public institution, you are also co-employed by the Pac-12 conference and the NCA itself, both of which are yeah. private institutions. And because those are private institutions, that means that the NLRB is sort of exercising jurisdiction. And what that also potentially mm -hmm. means is that any negotiations that occur, any bargaining that occurs would bring to the table those larger bodies as well as the universities. And I think that's crucially important because otherwise you have this problem scenario where even if you negotiate with UCLA a share of revenue, if the NCAA rules continue to prohibit you from being compensated, then you're in a bind, right? UCLA is in a bind. They can yeah. promise you revenue, but then they're excluded from the NCAA. But mm -hmm. if you have the NCAA at the table at the same time as UCLA and you negotiate 50% of revenue with UCLA and you negotiate simultaneously that the NCAA is going to modify those rules, right, then suddenly you have a pathway, a genuine pathway to full compensation. So that's just to try to, yeah. to, to lay out the recent developments, but you can see why they are crucially important. And what's going to happen now, of course, is there's going to be a process of appeal. It has to, it's going to peel away its way yeah. up to the top. Um, and ultimately, it's going to have to be ruled upon by the NLRB board itself, which has not yet happened. And there's no, um, you know, there, there's no clear determination of what's going to happen there. There have been indications still from even the NLRB's GC that um, because this is a lengthy process, like we're talking years that th this could take yeah. to resolve, um, it, it may still be that there is a legislative option that comes on the table. 
that sort of preempts this NLRB process. But to me, why this matters is if you are an advocate for college athletes, if you care about the interests of college athletes, we should view this moment as a moment where suddenly there is leverage for campus athletic workers, right? Why would we accept a bad piece of legislation that gives a small share of revenue or half measures when you know on the table right now is the possibility of full collective bargaining rights, right? And the capacity to really seize the full share that college athletes deserve. I think there's no excuse now for any kind of milk toast or lukewarm legislation. We have to be holding um, the legislators who are interested in these issues to the highest possible standard. Um, And so if we ultimately get a legislative solution, it should be one that's informed by college athletes, by college athlete organizing, and it should be one that grants the same type of bargaining rights to college athletes that they would receive through this NLRB pathway. It is not enough to get some kind of college athlete bill of rights, in my opinion, that from the top legislates what athletes get without providing the infrastructure for athletes to organize to defend those rights. Because I am not convinced that bill of rights will be enforced if we don't have an enforcement mechanism. And the only enforcement mechanism that works period, when it comes to labor issues, is the capacity to withdraw your labor. Yep. Yep. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, period, I couldn't agree more. Um, the, the way in which we recognize labor rights um, uh, in the United States uh, is the National Labor Relations Board. And until those rights are completely and uh, formally and uh, um, entirely protected under labor law, there's nothing. Everything else is secondary. You can offer more compensation. You can offer NIL um, rights. You can offer a bill of rights, um, and none of that will actually deal with the labor rights. So um, you've summed it up perfectly, Nathan. Yeah, and I would just add, I mean, we, we talked about this in past episodes, but obviously this is taking place within this like broader labor landscape, and we had, yeah. you know, was it striketober and there was a lot of striking activity in fall 2021 mm-hmm. there's been that striking activities continued there's been a lot within academia the you know grad students across the U- university of california system have yeah. been striking i think it's like 50 plus thousand people um there's just there's just kind of been a lot of labor activity going on and and one other thing i wanted to mention this was a something i tweeted over the summer but just to kind of like as if we needed any more reason to think that the NCAA is absolutely disgusting um the NCAA for years apparently has been as as part of its argument to say like this is why athletes should not be paid they've been using this case law i'm going to mispronounce it it's Vince Keek i don't know uh versus Peters this old um, case uh, that argued that while the 13th Amendment, which we know abolished slavery and um, uh, as well as abolished involuntary, involuntary servitude, if I can talk correctly, that within this amendment, which is foundational to part of our history, even though it's hugely, hugely problematic, right, that slavery was finally abolished after the Civil War, that within this amendment, there's a so-called slavery loophole that allows incarcerated people to not be paid for their labor. And because the NCAA has been using this case law, they're saying that college athletes are akin to incarcerated labor and should mm-hmm. not be paid. Now, granted, incarcerated people should be paid much better for their labor. We know that they're paid like pennies and they are totally um, um, exploited and it's absolutely disgusting. And also athletes are also exploited, right? So as if we needed any more reason to think that college sport is like this plantation system or a, a reformed plantation system or whatever you want to call it, right, that they're just using absolutely disgusting labor practices and case law over and over and over again so that's why like even though as nathan said this may take years for to kind of um be resolved in any shape or form i think i saw tweets about the nlrb being so poorly under so so hugely underfunded that they're having problems um just kind of getting through their caseload all of those things aside this is why this kind of ruling is so important and why Mm -hmm. we need to continue to raise awareness and kind of emphasize it over and over again so that more people are aware of it such as our students for example what you're pointing to is the coercion right that is at the heart of this Mm -hmm. system right that's that's essentially Mm -hmm. an explicit acknowledgement of the fact that each of these forms of labor are coercive if we're making a comparison between 
incarcerated labor and college sport labor, what we see in common there. And this is, frankly, an argument that has specifically been made by Erin Hatton yeah. right, in her book, Coerce. And right? Billy Hawkins and Billy Hawkins also did the same, a similar argument. Not the, not the in terms of status coercion or structural coercion, but mm-hmm. the the comparison between incarcerated workers and um, and campus athletic workers as well. That's right. And so what we're seeing here is that this is a conscious attempt to constrain people into providing labor for wages that are incommensurate with a supposedly free and fair society. Um, that, that, that there's a full understanding by the institutions in question that, that the entire political economy that they rely upon, their business model, is based on coercive conditions that require people yeah. to work for less than our society considers to be acceptable under any circumstances. And, and we should certainly yeah. take note of that. Yeah, and in terms of just like... Uh, the capitalism is failing. Capitalism has failed. Capitalism is, is always and inevitably a failure for for almost everyone who is working. And the fact that like we are seeing all of these labor mobilizations and these movements, it, it's all part of this like failure of capitalism. <laughs> failure. We're all working um, under conditions that are absolutely atrocious. And it, yeah, it, I think it is it is important to point out um, the ways in which uh, our employers are coercive uh, um, and moving forward, Um, but also like to understand, and this is an issue that I have talking with a lot of folks around um, labor movement is like the scale of it. Mm -hmm. And the scale here is so, it's so heavy when you're talking about campus athletic workers. Why do we focus on that? And why do we tend not to focus on other um, labor mobilizations as much? It's because the scale is so heavy here. These folks are quite literally generating billions of dollars um, and not able to see any of it, like zero um, directly from their employer. And, and that's, that's just atrocious. That's just um, horrifying in so many ways. Yeah. And you see that capitalism is, failing but also like i think the most important takeaway is that capitalism is also succeeding at capitalism right like it it fails people it fails to produce humane conditions for human life um but it succeeds at producing value for a, a, a very very small capitalist class um and it's also following the same logic that has always followed, right? Like crisis is a feature of capitalism. It has always been a feature of capitalism. Yeah. And the fact that we are seeing a moment of crisis where um, the tensions and contradictions of capitalism are very apparent, and therefore it feels to a lot of people like the system is failing to satisfy their needs, which it is. <laughs> it's very clearly yeah. failing to satisfy their needs. That doesn't produce an inevitability to the sort of failure of the system as a system um it's just sort of following um it's following the a cycle that will ultimately lead to you know new frontiers of capitalist exploitation the other nca issue we should hit on or at least one other nca issue is the fact that we as derek mentioned earlier we actually have a new pre- incoming president for the organization um any optimism there None, none. I have so many thought. I have so many thoughts about how this is being framed, actually. That I, I, and I haven't spoken to either of you about this. So I'm really interested in how we're talking, how people are talking about this. So people are talking about Charlie Baker coming in and Mark Emmert going out in terms of the the most pressing challenges facing this person, Charlie Baker, as he takes up this new position, that the two biggest, most pressing challenges, according to the sports media complex, are one, labor law issues, as we've spoken about, and two, transfer regulations amongst the laborers. And I despise that this is the framing of this hire and of this person. That's this person is viewed as someone like for out there that's not part of you know university administration but a governor a bipartisan person who has worked with people and he's going to solve these two pressing issues rather than 
let's like talk about how it's an, uh, it's an exploitative system or talk about all the things we've we've been um, preaching on this show that's not what's happening and it just highlights how ingrained how deeply 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 ingrained media is in this and the fact that another i'll throw this other thing out there that i've been thinking about like very few people are talking about politics and sport now right the same people who are who have been so vocal about how we need to keep politics out of sport when we're talking about the labor they don't seem to really they're not saying much when quite literally a politician is now leading the ncaa like where are the people who are saying keep politics out of sport now they're not speaking so i i have all these thoughts and i really want to get your your take on on what's happening both you uh you johanna and nathan yeah you know so i haven't been following this as as much as you two have but i it didn't register with me that that within the same i don't know like year that charlie baker is going to take over the ncaa or at least that decision was made is the same year that a similar republican politician is is hired as the president of university of florida which is something i've been paying very close attention to mm-hmm. as this horrid mm-hmm. place where i got my phd so uh, is this a coincidence i don't know but like it is striking to me that we have two major institutions i mean uf has as like seem some somehow probably bribed its way to getting into like the top five there's like top there's lists of the top five public universities in the in the u.s um and somehow is on these lists now and they get this like major political appointee who people have similarly talked about oh well like he spoke out against trump you know he can walk across party lines he mm-hmm. knows how to yeah. dialogue with people he knows how to listen to people um but yeah it just strikes me as like very very coincidental slash Maybe it's all planned that like we have these Republican political appointees that are being appointed basically to these massive mm-hmm. positions of power over education and sports, two things that people of a certain political persuasion are saying, you know, keep edu- keep politics out of education, keep morals out of ed- education, and same thing with sports. Yeah, well, and I, and I would add that even if we, I mean, one, we have the conservative assault on higher education, framing higher yeah. education mm-hmm. as this like bastion of liberalism that is threatening to, you know, overturn America and free speech and whatever else, uh, which is, you know, like part of a larger fascist um, assault on democracy in any true sense. You know, that, that's obviously true and that's, and that's happening and we see this as in a way symptomatic of that. But I think we should also recognize that um, probably more than anything, we have to see this as part of the like the neoliberalization as opposed to the conservative movement, the neoliberalization yeah. mm-hmm. of higher education and our institutions. Um, and that means that what, what I'm trying to get at here is that there is a way in which the political class that governs the United States across and truly this is bipartisan. This is across both mm-hmm. aisles. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is invested in running all American institutions. Uh, according yeah. to a corporate model, a managerial model that extracts value, that individualizes, um, that, that, that's across the board. And so anytime yeah. we see this sort of overlap between institutional leaders at this point at the university level and between political figures and between in, figures in industry, right, we're just seeing a kind of fomenting of neoliberal governing doctrine. And, and that has very concrete implications for labor in general, right? In the way that a Biden yeah. administration was not willing to help railroad workers yeah. when, when it pushed came right. to shove, right? Jesus. Because yeah. the Democrat Party and the Republican Party are not interested in helping the interests of labor ever. And, yeah. and so all of this is to say, I think you're, you're rightly pointing to the fact that, and this comes back, circles back to the same thing we always say, but I, I guess we're I'm underlining this to try to explain why, what the rationale is for always making the same point. The only thing that will benefit the interests of college athletes is their own organizing, That's their right. own yeah. labor struggle, right? Because no one is going to do it for them. None of these that you cannot yeah. name an appointee who would ever be considered an appropriate appointee right. whose, whose philosophy would be to turn over power to athletes who are generating revenue because 
the revenue being generated by these athletes is lining the pockets of the very figures who are governing over them. And the only way that college athletes can get more of the value that they produce, literally, we are t- it is a zero-sum game. We are taking it away mm-hmm. from people who unrightfully, unjustly are enjoying the fruits of that labor currently, yeah. right? The administrators, yeah. the coaches, the huge athletic departments, that's not the only place the revenue is going, but it's a huge site of expenditure. And if you ultimately give 50% or something like that of the, the value back to players, it's coming directly out of those pockets, right? So you'll yeah. never see yeah. choices from above under any circumstances yeah. that favor players. Yeah, and this this is precisely why the the media coverage is so frustrating for me. It's like no shit these people are going to be apologists for the system and also protect the system. ESPN generates what? Like 800 million dollars any given year off college football um in the Power 5. All those journalists, all those editors, all those TV personalities are also supported by that exploitation and wage theft. But like this, all of the media coverage, everything being talked about in terms of Charlie, uh, of this change in leadership, you're right. It doesn't matter who it goes to. It doesn't matter if it's Democrat, Republican. It does not matter who is in that position. It's always going to be the same thing. But focusing the story on how the challenge, labor rights are a challenge, and the transfer portal is a challenge, is intended explicitly to distract people, to distract people from what's going on. And that's what's so. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I I, and I think that there's genuine there's genuine anxiety there because you're exactly right. I mean, I'm really glad you brought that in. If you think about the the political economy of the sport media complex, right? Every all the all those earnings for ESPN that you just described are predicated entirely on the commodity spectacle produced by these athletic workers. So in the exact same way that athletic departments and coaches are sort of robbing these workers in order to line their own pockets. That's precisely what's happening at ESPN for the entire, you know, yeah. the, for the corporate class at ESPN and also for the so-called talent at ESPN who wouldn't have anything to talk about, right? Because their talent actually is entirely reliant on the real talent of the athletes. Yeah. There's just a kind of secondary form of talent that wouldn't exist without the, the, the primary talent of the players. And so they have a direct investment and not changing the status quo because they know that the status quo is a cash cow. They know Mm -hmm. that college sports gets ever more lucrative every year. They want to add playoff games. They want to add more work to the players. But they are genuinely frightened that if you change the current form of college sport and make it look more professional, what are they scared of? They're scared that it becomes AAA baseball. Because AAA baseball is not a lucrative political economy in the grand scheme of things. People are not running wild, making profit off of it, right? Clearly, there was vast exploitation happening there and so forth. But that was not the same as what we see in college sport in terms of the amount of money being made and the amount of theft that was occurring. And they're scared Mm -hmm. that if you turn college sport into that or the G League or something to that effect, right, then that money dries up. And the transfer rules, that threatens it because, oh, well, now it looks like free agency. NIL threatens it because, oh, now people talk about paying the players. And revenue sharing and and labor organization and employer status, employee status, that's the biggest threat of all, right? That's the final frontier. And so they are fighting it tooth and nail literally every step of the discursive way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, yeah, you're, you're completely right. Um, And, and I think this, all of these things are what's been like particularly frustrating for me as I kind of watch this all take on because there's just so many ways in which people are distracted from from the the reality of the system and what's actually happening and uh, we know sport is used to greenwash harm and exploitation we know sports are like one of the things people will accept exploitation violence harm problems in and under the guise of like this is where politics shouldn't play out and this is where Mm -hmm. we shouldn't have political discussions because it's just fun it's just something i want to do on a friday night but like the the fact that a a literal politician is put in in that position a literal you can make the argument that it's like always a political position the the president of the ncaa i get that but Mm -hmm. a literal politician is moving from 
literal politics into the position is particularly frustrating because that the same people who say politics don't belong in sport don't give a shit when politics are quite literally like injected into sport they'll use keep politics out of sport to keep certain people silent and then they'll say oh this is a good hire he's gonna have there's gonna be challenges and he's gonna he's gonna be bipartisan and get us through these challenges and it's just really frustrating to see that discursive frame um take shape and form but i i could go on forever about that yeah, I mean, one one final thing I wanted to add, just because I, I saw it, I think, yesterday, thanks to Amanda Mull, who is a friend of the podcast, um, about this issue of, like, the transfer portal, right? And we've seen so many coaches over and over over again talk about how bad it is, right? And how, as we've been saying, right, athlete, organizing athlete, unionizing, this is what's going to get them their rights. This is what's going to get them, like, hopefully some kind of adequate compensation and kind of health care and access to education, all these things they should have. But the just to kind of go to show how like discussing coaches are about the portal. This is a quote that came out on December 19th. So two days ago from Arkansas head coach, Sam Pittman, I don't follow follow college football, so I don't actually know who he is, but this coach is just totally, uh, sorry, this quote is discussing. He said, quote, if your wife wants to get in the portal, it's, it's hard to bring her back. At some point, you're going, I'll go replace her. You kind of have to have that mindset because then it becomes just woe is me. Our mindset is whomever decides they'd like to do that. We certainly love them and want them to stay. But if they decide to go, then our mindset is we're going to go replace them. And I just the whole like the whole like. Uh, the whole uh, portrayal of sort of the portal, this labor exchange is being akin to like romantic relationship with your wife, this whole family and like love. We've talked about the exploitative use of kind of this family rhetoric, not to mention there's a difference between a sexual relationship with your wife and the labor relationship that you have between a coach and an athlete. But it just, again, just goes to show like how like disgusting they are and their approach to the portal. And yes, it may seem that he He's saying, okay, if you want to leave, leave. But like the coercive elements are a part of it, right? If you leave, it doesn't matter to us because we're just going to replace you the way I can just go and replace my wife. You know, so I just, I don't know, just just a concrete example to kind of just go to show how disgusting all of this is. Yeah, and the coaches turn this into, and and the media, as you pointed out, Derek, turn this into a moral panic. uh, And they certainly have done that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But let's also be clear. What he is describing there, there is no change whatsoever in the disposition of coaches toward their players as a consequence of these new so-called liberalized transfer rules. Yes, Coaches yes. were always on the lookout to replace players if they saw the possibility yes. of what they perceived to be improved value at any time. They just had Play- even more tools to do it. What they object to is that players now yeah. have agency as well, right? So yeah. this idea, like... He objects to the fact that now he needs to be potentially thinking about the fact that he has to treat his players well, or that if he doesn't treat his players well enough, that he may have to now find other players to be on the team in new ways than he had to do before. But like this threat, like, well, now because you're doing this, we're going to have to. No, you've got the causality entirely backwards. Coaches were always on the lookout to replace players they felt were underperforming. Players were always vulnerable to replacement. The only thing that has changed is that now players have some agency too. I mean, I feel like it's, I mean, a lot of this that we're talking about is just more of the same. And I, it's absolutely like more of the same when it comes to like um, abuse in sport and also the anti-trans movement in sport. I feel like, you know, we're several years from me too. And I feel like on the one hand, there is a lot of momentum and that we do see, um, survivors of sexual and physical abuse who are are still coming forward, even though there's so much backlash, right? The whole Depp Heard trial really, really was awful in terms of how the media portrayed Heard and and both of them was just was just awful. And I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to go into it um, because I just, I just think that would be, I don't know, I think it would take us down a different road, but I think, you know, the fact that we do still have more and more survivors of abuse who are coming forward, I think is amazing. We're seeing a lot of movement in Canada. I mean, yeah. I feel like every day there are, every day there are new stories about abuse. That's not anything new. Um, 
But I think the, what's going on in Canada is is a bit unique in that we have athletes that are working together across sports, which we don't see very often. I feel like we tend to see, you know, athletes and, you know, the, the gymnasts. We see, I don't know, runners. We see football players. We see soccer players, whatever. But we don't see a lot of kind of cross movements across different sports. And I think we see that in Canada. Obviously, Kim Shore, who we had on the show, who's mm-hmm. amazing. She's been a huge, huge player in this. Um, mm-hmm. Kira McCormick, who yeah. recently, I think, spoke in front of Parliament or something in Derek. And Nathan, you all can kind yeah, of provide more standing, concrete details. The standing committee on on the status of women's hearings on the um, sa- basically on safety of women and girls in sport in Canada. And that was a political. I mean, not a political yeah. thing, but in the sense of like, it's not just like we're making a statement to the press, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a, a, it, it's a standing committee of Parliament. Okay, okay, yeah. And I just I feel like even though there's even though the, the Canadian government they're like kind of doing very piecemeal things like we're going to donate a bunch of money to mental health and people are like who's going to be in charge of distributing these funds for mental health what's going to be done with it there's talk of investigations but it's from what i understand it's little about independent investigations so right the government the Canadian government is making very kind of band-aid measures to kind of try mm-hmm. to forestall any systemic change but just based on my twitter feed this is something that i am getting out of twitter right now as I'm seeing a lot of people posting about this. Um, I think Rob Kohler, who is maybe in charge of Global Athlete Headquarters, or he's very heavily involved in, I can't, I don't remember his exact position. He um, tweeted yesterday how um, this organization, Global Athlete Headquarters, has received abuse complaints from around the globe, but we have received more from Canada than from any other country. The fact that Canadian athletes are speaking up about the abuse and the government is doing nothing is frightening, and there's this hashtag sports survivor that's been going on around a lot lately, and so I feel like the movement in Canada is still really, really strong. They're facing a lot of resistance, but the fact that it's really strong, I think, is really, again, something we got to like hold her hat on to and the yeah. fact that it's movement across many many sports um and then i can talk about the anti-trans stuff but maybe i'll see if you two have anything to add to this um abuse uh anti-abuse movement going on yeah well i just i just have i, I like gen- general thoughts about one so on the one side there's br- absolutely brilliant work being done by people like Kim Shore, Kira McCormack, uh, Miriam DeSilva Rondeau in boxing. So many folks who are, who are taking on systems that are powerful and they're doing it in, in really amazing ways. But the, the other side of this is the fact that still today in Canada, the, the minister of sport is doing nothing, is doing nothing about any of this. The federal government is doing nothing it's a lot of words and we talk about neoliberalization of of higher education it's a lot of like oh let's we're gonna create committees we're going to 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 talk about and and have like an investigation and and we're going to introduce this new program for like funding a a program uh in 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 this area for uh, that will help with safe sport but but nothing actually at the high level policy um uh, difference uh, or differences in high level policy um the the canadian sport policy is about to be renewed in february but there's been no talk about how we need to like reconstruct the entire system and about how that policy is uh, has historically failed uh, vulnerable people in canadian sport so really we're we're seeing more of the same like business as usual from this government and i think that's what these folks like kira like like kira um uh like miriam are highlighting the fact that like nothing is actually um changed and nothing has actually been done how about we have a national inquiry into abuse in sport period let's start right there and everything else is secondary and and they're they won't do that um they've they have shown no um desire to take something like that on so while the while the the athletes who have been harmed by the system are leading and and making change and fostering change we still see the same the same governmental response um which i think is really poignant here in in the case of canadian abuse i don't know i have lots of thoughts on this canadian (laughs) canadian thing and it like I uh, yeah, I just have a lot of thoughts on how the government's responding, but that might be like 
jaded a little bit by my own take on Canadian politics and the fact that like we've similar to the states we've got these like two parties that are two legitimate federal parties that are both equally useless just in different in different ways um we've got a like prime minister trudeau who says he cares about gender inequity and cares about racialized folks but doesn't like doesn't actually it's not not of interest to him or his government um to actually do the things you need to do to make harm or make sport make anything less harmful it's the same same as the states like we can have biden as president he's gonna do similar things as Uh any other republican president you know what i mean yeah yeah and i think i think it's also worth noting that you know we you know the the abuse and the exploitation that we hear about in the news it's i think it's worth reminding people that this is only what we hear about right this is what <laughs> yeah. this is like such a sliver of like what actually happens because the conditions required for people to feel comfortable to come forward and to unionize and to kind of develop a movement and work together and come forward i mean they the there's so many layers of oppression yeah. and coercion that are stacked against them so all while all while all of this stuff is going on in the news there's so much is going on behind the scenes so much abuse every Every single day that we just do not hear anything about so yeah. yeah when these governments are dragging their feet the ncaa is refusing to pay athletes for their labor and continues to you know treat them you know horribly like it's going to continue and the thousands of people that are impacted their trauma is just going to compound every single day and impact their families and impact their physical health and mental health so yeah. you know again what we hear about in the news is such a such a tiny sliver of what's actually going on and i just think it's worth um reminding ourselves that yeah absolutely absolutely and and one of the most pervasive areas where like i think harm and sport and and particularly in like in the news that we see is just this general anti-trans movement um Mm -hmm. that that we've seen really take hold and we use the term moral panic before about the transfer portal this is Mm -hmm. a true moral panic the Mm -hmm. anti-trans discourse is quite literal is much more pervasive of a moral panic than anything in a transfer portal in the ncaa um and it truly harms so many people and and i know you johanna you keep up on on a lot of the news so much so that you're constantly texting us and telling us about things that are happening so do you have thoughts on like what's happening um and what's going on right now yeah, uh, I mean it's so it's so awful. And like last summer, I when my mental health was really really awful, and I was going through probably like the darkest moment I've ever been. And I had to kind of step back from some of the advocating and like fighting against anti-trans people because it was just like mentally like with everything going on in my personal life, it was just like too much. Yeah. Um, and a couple of people reached out to me, and they were like, "We know that you care about this advocacy work, but like, are you actually doing okay? Like, what's going on?" Um, yeah. So anyway. I don't, I don't, I just offer that just to show how hard it is. But like the, the reason why I wanted to talk about the anti-sexual abuse movement and the anti-trans movement is because there's this really awful and horrifying alliance between some of them, not at mm-hmm. all, not between all of them by any means, but th- this moral panic, the, the way that it's being framed, the way that people are framing it together and as these interlocking issues the way that they're choosing to do it is really disgusting because what people such as Nancy Hogshead Maycar, who I've talked about before, I I analyze her a lot because she's an Olympic swimmer who horrifically was raped, I think, in the late 1980s. So she And she's a lawyer. And so she's made a big name and a big platform for herself for fighting against sexual abuse and gender discrimination, which are laudable things. But honestly, so much of that work is uh, pretty much all that work is in the toilet because she's choosing to use her experience and the experience of predominantly cis uh, white women and I say predominantly because there are many many people who are sexually abused who are not cis white women but her demographic is cis especially heterosexual white women who have been sexually abused and who are discriminated against by predominantly cis heterosexual white men again Mm -hmm. these are not hard and fast lines but that is the predominant group that we hear the most about and even though it is largely cis heterosexual white women who are perpetrating 
this gender discrimination, sexual abuse, physical and emotional abuse in sport because of the fact that cishet white men are the ones who control power in sport. Yeah. Right? They're the ones who hold most of the positions of power, who hold most of the position who hold most of the money due to our yeah. neoliberal imperialist fascist society. Um rather than than focus on on these people, she's now focusing on trans people mm-hmm. who are far, far more marginalized than yeah. she is, than I am, who are people who are both cisgender, heterosexual white women. So she is choosing to focus on and a much, much, much more marginalized, minoritized community whose mental health, whose physical health is being attacked every day. I mean, literally people are advocating for genocidal policies. That is becoming the norm in the U.S. because they are trying to forcibly detransition people, which is an attempt to erase transgender people from society like this is not just like oh well they can't use their pronouns well not being able to use your pronouns is denying them their their existence and who they say they who they are not just who they say they are but who they are right so these are genocidal policies and she is retweeting and quote tweeting libs of tiktok Right. Yeah. She is quote tweeting and she was on this. She went to this or I could go on all day about this, but she was at this icons conference last summer, which was a full on anti-trans conference where she was speaking on the panel with the ADF. Yeah. Right. Which is this hugely, you know, this organization that promotes anti-Semitism, which promotes anti-black policies, all these horrific things. And so yeah. there's just been this alliance within the anti-sexual abuse movement with the anti-trans movement. Now, there are those of us who are fighting against this. Obviously, trans people are like, what the fuck are you doing? We are yeah. not the ones who are sexually assaulting you. Like, this is ridiculous. But then yeah. there are people within the anti-sexual abuse movement, such as myself, such as Aurelie Panko, who is a French woman who um, has advocated, who was a victim of, of sexual abuse as well, who has advocated um, against the anti-trans movement. So there are some of us who are doing this, but I really encourage listeners to join us in this fight because yeah. it's a it's 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 a rather small number of us that are doing it, and it's really disgusting. And I mean, again, we see things in the news every single day about these new. Um, pieces of legislation that are being presented uh, to try to ban trans people in sport. And so sport is like a part of it. Um, But it's about, you know, whether it's about people wanting to erase transgender people from existing within our societies, which is disgusting. So I will, I could, again, I could go on all day, but I'll kind of wrap it up there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think like we've talked about this on the show um, before and, and, um, Carly Chardonnay Webb talked talked us through mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. like get how ignoring folks and silencing them and acting as if folks don't exist in sport is also it's it's also part of the political project to deny these folks exist period end of story mm-hmm. right <laughs> and and that i think you're you're really articulating how important um it is to pay attention to how this discourse plays out in sport because it doesn't end in sport right it it will never that and they know this like this is the this is the political project they know that sport is but an avenue and an avenue that for for some people who are a little bit um more um apologist of the you know misogynist patriarchal heterosexual world that we have they know that sport can be use as a vessel to get those people into the movement right Mm -hmm. um that Mm -hmm. that sport it is that place where you oh we've always had gendered lines in sport we can't have um trans folks in locker rooms growing up because we have this gender dichotomy in the sports world and and people who are more aligned um with the status quo will jump on will, will be more likely to jump on board with that and that so they come in through sport, but then it extends to far beyond sport. And then you take that same logic and you take that into education, into right. our political system. And, and all of us, not all of a sudden, over a period of time, folks who might, you might only view this as an issue in sport, over a period of time, you see that these folks are also um, non-existent um, by definition in things like law. And that's, that's what 
is we're we're fighting for. Absolutely. And you know, we're not here to like debate testosterone, all of those things. <laughs> that whole discussion is like honestly it's it's illegitimate because yeah, athletes have many di- right it's distracting techniques and there's like athletes have all kinds of abilities not just testosterone yeah. um but i i, I want to reiterate something that uh frankie de la Creta, when they came on the show that said that the anti-trans movement does not just negatively impact trans people and while trans people should be i think should be the predominant focus because they're the ones being actively targeted and tr- people trying to erase them from existence but the more that we scrutinize who is a quote unquote man or woman and what do they look like? What body features do they have? What's going on biologically, blah, blah, blah. The more that we ask, like when we ask those questions, we are also challenging the gender of cisgender people, right? Yeah. We're also scrutinizing them. And we see that so much with Castor Semenya that's been going on yeah. for yeah. so, so long. And, and people have done really uh, an incredible work to highlight the, the, an, the anti-black element of the anti-trans movement. Um, yeah. Because black and brown women, their gender is their femininity is going to be challenged much more so than mine is as a white woman. So I think, you know, there may be people out there who are like, well, it's just about sport and like, oh, what about testosterone? And like, well, I'm a cisgender person. So like, why does this really matter? I just want to win. And um, I mean, this question that many, many, many people have been asking that we have to keep coming back to is like, why is competition valued more than human life? That's right. Like why, you know, why does it matter more than people's basic humanity and their rights? And, you know, it's all going to come it's going to bite everybody in the ass the more that we ask these questions about people's gender and quote unquote biology and what do they look like, you know, speed and muscles and all these things, because it is literally a never ending story, right? It's a never ending slew of questions and you will, the the right answer will never be found. That's the other thing. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what someone looks like. It doesn't matter what's going on the inside. The right answer will never be found. The, The quote unquote right answer will be created. Yeah. And and parts about that person will be silenced and hidden because it's all a fabrication. Yeah. Um but yeah, like I sorry, I could keep going on, no, but I, I just I just think we have to remember that like literally it impacts all of us whether 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 it's that obvious or not. That's such a useful reminder and this is all just part of the the project of uh, towards fascism. This is mm-hmm. this it, it's all part of the playbook. Right. Right. Uh, a shift towards fascism it's all part of the same political project that we need to to fight back so you it, your your points are completely well taken here and hopefully hopefully listeners are um are, are on board um with some of these things i'd, I'd hope if you're listening to a, like episode 110 <laughs> or whatever of this podcast that you're kind of on board with that um but listen there's so much that that we can talk about and if there's appetite reach out to us on twitter if there's appetite for us to to do a sort of dive on on say the the fifa world cup or things like um the sort of I, I what I view as like the horrible mistreatment in media of what happened with Brittany Griner. Mm-hmm. There's so there's a million things we can talk about. If there's appetite, please reach out to us and and um, let us know what you'd like to listen to. But I would like to just reiterate that expect a little bit more frequent um, pub, um, episodes coming out. I wouldn't say it's going to be weekly at any point. Um, I think lives have forever changed. Um, but but we are looking to to get back into our interviews and into our analysis of harm and injustice and exploitation in sports. So thank you to all the listeners. Um, We're super happy to be back. Hopefully that's obvious Mm -hmm. from this episode (laughs) and keep tuning in, like share, definitely subscribe because um, sort of chief fascist uh, Elon Musk might ruin um, Twitter at any point. uh, So we might all be off of it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And like one last thing I wanted to say that I meant to say earlier is that like, thank you for staying with us while we took this extended break. Mm -hmm. This was sort of unplanned and we didn't really we didn't communicate with you all because it was sort of ad hoc and we had stuff going on our own lives. But like we have to remember that like rest is revolutionary. 
right? That like everybody needs to rest, especially in this capitalist fascist environment that wants to squeeze as much as they can out of us. Um, I also want to say burn it all down has taken a a prolong, it's taken a break as well. Not as long as we have, but they're currently on a break. And I want to direct listeners to listen to their latest episode where they explain the need for the break. And they also explain the emotional kind of challenges of like realizing that they need a break because, because the podcast meant so meant to them. And it was very, um, I, I listening to it really, really struck a chord with me. And so we did not do that so much on here. We just kind of talked about what's going on in our lives and while we took a break, but I really direct listeners to listen to the episode. We'll link in the show notes as well, because Absolutely. I think it was really, really a wonderful tribute to like why rest is needed, why rest is revolutionary, but also the value of these communities that we've all created. Um, and obviously burn it all down. We really admire what they do. Yeah. We really model yeah. a lot of what we do on what they do. They've been extremely inspired inspirational so uh, we'll link that so that people can listen to it but just rest is revolutionary thank you for staying with us we've missed you all and we're excited to be back